This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. This episode's release date marks three years since the start of the COVID-19 shutdown here in Chicago. These past three years have tested the limits of our community and government as our formal and informal support systems strained against the weight of a pandemic unlike anything experienced in recent history. This week, we want to honor the work and support we have all put into surviving through these years, especially those on the front lines. Emergency responders, pharmacists, doctors and nurses, and all the people that make our hospitals and care centers run, our essential workers, the folks who make our transportation and food systems flow, everyone who has been laboring on vaccines and treatments, those who organized community care when the systems failed, and everyone who has lost someone. This episode, we join teller Jeanette Mrozinski as she shares a brief look at the day following a personal trauma and her gratitude to the people who stepped up to help her. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in November 2022, Second Story is proud to present Eucharist. Six hours, 46 minutes. The pharmacy counter at my neighborhood Walgreens opened at 9 a.m., a full hour later than the rest of the store. I should have known that. When I was 16, I worked behind a pharmacy counter just like this one, and I lived, and I died by that clock. I was 31 now, with a grown-up job in City Hall and a full-on identity crisis sparked by a recent divorce. New style, I drowned my sorrows nightly at bars wearing heels and a full face of makeup. New hobbies, I started going to church, of all things. One of those seeker-friendly church plants that met in a school gym and played Evanescence in the worship set. <laughs> and new side hustle, one or two evenings a week, I worked as an escort. On Friday nights, I was wined and dined by men who paid me in fat stacks of bills to do all the things their wives would not. And on Sunday mornings, I ate bread and drank grape juice from a little plastic cup and said my prayers. 23 minutes passed until a teenager who looked as bored as I used to raised the rolling counter door overhead and began serving the other customers. Neighbors shivering against colds and flus and strep throats, they stood between me and salvation. Seven hours, eight minutes. When it was finally my turn, I gave the teenager my handwritten prescriptions from the urgent care clinic. He searched the shallow drug shelves and came up empty, then asked the pharmacist, who didn't look up from his computer screen, we don't have them, try the next door over. What's it for? A teenage apprentice asked. The pharmacist shook him off. The kid handed me back my prescriptions and sent me on my way. It was not far, two miles or so to the next store. In Chicagoland, so plentiful are the Walgreens pharmacies, you can navigate by them the way ancient seafarers once navigated by the stars in the sky. Even as a teenager still behind the counter, I'd wondered how it was that we suburbanites were always so sick that we could support constellations of drugstores. We had collectively made a lot of bad decisions. Albuterol for the smokers, Lipitor for the processed pork eaters, Prilosec for the workaholics, Tivike and Truvada for the girl who had got herself raped. The post-exposure prophylaxis regimen, or PEP, 
is a combination of antiviral drugs that, when taken in combination as a month-long course of treatment, can reduce the risk of HIV transmission by more than 80%. PEP is indicated when an HIV-negative person is exposed to bodily fluids, blood, or semen, from a person who is confirmed or at high risk of an HIV-positive status. In occupational settings, this might be a nurse stuck by a needle poking out from a sharps box, or a sex worker raped by a traveling businessman named Michael who choked her when she demanded he wear a condom then crushed her body for hours beneath his into a signature Weston heavenly pillow top mattress. I'd first learned about HIV prophylaxis a decade before at a college frat party. The only frat parties I was ever invited to in college were at Triangle, the fraternity for engineering majors, where on this particular night, the brothers had engineered a system to pump a soapy foam through the house's HVAC system, soaking the party in bubbles and booze. I'm sure he told me his name. But all I remember of the guy I met that vodka and bubbles soaked night was that he was an incredible dancer with even more incredible abs, which made sense since, like me, he worked back home as a stripper. We enjoyed some industry water cooler talk, but mostly I enjoyed his command over my hips on the slippery dance floor and the way he held me steady in his very large biceps. He paused for a minute between our kissing and groping. I'm uh, in this clinical trial, he said, for an AIDS vaccine. This was either the best or worst pickup line I could have imagined. No, 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 don't. He said, don't worry, I'm, I'm fine, like, like a healthy test subject. He kept talking, telling me how more than a decade past the peak terror of the AIDS crisis, young men, his friends, we're still getting sick. St. Louis had become a refuge for gay kids cast from their good Christian homes across the lower Midwest, and subsequently one of the largest domestic vaccine trial sites. The nameless stripper, covered in soap suds and holding my ass on the front house dance floor, had volunteered as a healthy test subject because he wanted to save boys from the mistakes they would regret as men. It's, it's not a live virus, he said. It's, it's a DNA thing. It works by preventing the virus from reproducing in the body. Cool, I said, that's, that's cool of you. Seven hours, 25 minutes. At the Walgreens two miles north, the lines of sick and uninsured were just as long. Normally when I'm impatient, it reads all over me in huffs and sighs, sarcastic comments and eye rolls, not this day. This day, I trembled. I could not huff or sigh. My vocal cords were inflamed from the choking and when I finally got to the front of the line and gave the girl the spelling of my name, all I managed was a hoarse whisper. I handed over the prescriptions again, waited for my name to be called again. The 16-year-old clerk handed me a single bag. So the other one we have to special order, it'll be here Monday. I began to panic, to shake, to make the teenager behind the counter very nervous. No, I said, that won't work. I need to take it as soon as possible. There's only a 72-hour window for it to work at all. Eight hours, 33 minutes. The teen looked at her pharmacist for help with a disturbed-looking woman at her register, and the pharmacist, still scraping pills and stapling bags, glanced over her shoulder to give me the first look of concern I had seen in eight hours. Her empathy shook loose in my body, the stoic reserve with which I'd armored myself and I fell to pieces, my face hot, my eyes watering the full weight of Michael's fat body. 
the full weight of the threat of death crushing me. Took everything I had not to cry at that counter. She propped the phone between her shoulder and her ear, her hands still scraping pills. This is for post-exposure, she said. Don't leave. I'm, I'm making some calls. Saturdays like these were the reason I'd grown addicted to the rhythm of Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings steadied everything. On Sundays, I would walk into a junior high cafetorium with a folding chair set out in the otherwise empty front row. And with my back to the rest of the congregation, I would ugly cry with nobody to see me but God and Pastor Jeff, who most of the time would avoid eye contact, but other times would see straight through me. You know when I needed to be brought back into the fold. You see, Pastor Jeff would preach, God brings people into his, your life who bring you closer to him. He would pause, and he would look straight at me. And I am not talking about wealthy, attractive single men. Har har, I'd say, because even this comedy routine between Jeff and I became a part of the sun Sunday morning routine that I craved. Every week the same, coffee, music, the Lord's Prayer, bread, grape juice. Every week provoking the same chain reaction response, reflection, reckoning, remorse, catharsis. Every week a body ripped apart and restored again. Nine hours, one minute. The empathetic pharmacist wished me good luck and sent me to a third store where she'd already called ahead, confirmed they had both prescriptions in stock and put them on hold for me. It takes only a tiny number of virus molecules to trigger an HIV infection. Once they enter your body, whether or not they'll take hold of your immune system and turn your own blood against you is a game of probabilities a series of battles between a single virus molecule and a T-cell. If the virus wins, it infects the T-cell and uses it as a host to begin replicating and spreading throughout your body. If the T-cell wins, it clears that single virus molecule, repeats until all the viral molecules lose or win. The PEP regimen fortifies your T-cells for each battle. Take the first dose within 72 hours, and you improve your odds. But the longer you wait to get the drugs into your body, the more time you spend driving from store to store, the more time you spend waiting in line only to leave empty-handed, the longer the battles go on without your immune cells getting any backup. Every hour counts, read the CDC website. I drove faster. Nine hours, 32 minutes. The stock store lay just four miles east, but it may as well have been another country. There were no sick, no uninsured here. The lone woman in front of me picked up a retinoid wrinkle cream, swiped a credit card, and left. My battered vocal cords croaked my name at this third teenage pharmacy technician and I waited at the counter in the cheap black dress from the night before and JBF hair and eye makeup smeared across my face. And I sensed the teenager watching me with suspicion and maybe disgust and I pulled out a fat wad of 20s and I paid in cash. Two copays and a bottle of water. $81.82, 10 hours, 11 minutes. In the car, in the parking lot, I ripped the bottles from the paper bag, catching just a glimpse at the long list of drug facts and warnings stapled to the front. It's not a live virus, it's a DNA thing. This medication works, the package read, by preventing the virus from reproducing in the body. And I remembered that moment at the end of the frat party when the music had died down 
and a room had freed up. And I had studied the stripper naked and chiseled and bathed in the amber glow of a street lamp through the window. And how I had watched his hands as he turned the still-wrapped condom over and over between his thumb and his fingers, the way a priest holds a communion wafer under his thumb before pressing it, snapping it in two. Maybe he'd be giving thanks for the grace and protection of a thin piece of lube-covered plastic. Maybe it had just been a tick. Or maybe he'd been stalling, trying to remember my name, too. 10 hours, 13 minutes. The breaking of bread and wine, remembered and celebrated every Sunday by Christ followers across the world, goes by many names. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the most blessed sacrament, but the oldest among these, the name straight from the Gospel Greek, is Eucharist, literally Thanksgiving. In my freezing cold car in the parking lot of the Walgreens, I picked up the bottle and the drug cocktail from my cup holder, and I gave thanks. Thanks to God, sure, but more to the people God had brought into my life. Thanks to pharmacists who took half a minute from their impossible workloads for empathy. Thanks to drug researchers and big pharma. Thanks to the life-saving grace of a 20-year-old bisexual male stripper who had volunteered not to test this exact drug, but one a lot like it. Thanks to the other accidental saints just like him, shunned by churches, excluded from communion tables, and living their lives with a selfless spark of the divine. And when I had given thanks, I swallowed the pills, took a swig from the bottle of water, and I said my prayers. This story was produced by Jetta Myers, curated by Julie Ganey and Lexi Saunders, and directed by Elisa Fetter with music and sound design from Mike Benedict and Jeff Schaller. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this This is the Second Second Story Podcast.